Welcome back to Basic Bible 101. For today, we are going to cover the last book of the New Testament. If you have been following along with us all through the Old and New Testament, good for you. You have now covered most of the major stories in the Bible. I want to really encourage you to go back and do more in-depth study because Basic Bible is just that, an overview. And there is much more to learn about all of the different things we've discussed along the way. But today's lesson is probably going to be one of the most difficult ones because the book of Revelation is very complicated. Now, we have studied in the New Testament, we studied the Gospels, the story of Jesus, his life, his how he was uh, born in, and in a manger, and all, why we uh, celebrate Christmas the way we do. We studied how he preached for three years and his teachings, and then we studied his uh, death and resurrection. And then we studied in Acts the early, uh, history of the early church, how they got started, who was the leader, uh, different characters that uh, come to mind, Stephen, Peter. Uh, then we got into Paul, if you remember, and, and we talked about the different journeys that he took and how he was one of the first missionaries. And then we talked about some of the letters that he wrote back to the different churches, which are our books of First and Second Corinthians, uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and so forth. Then we talked about the other letters that were written by James and Peter and Jude and, and some that we don't know who wrote them, Hebrews. So today, this is the last book in the New Testament. It is prophetic for the most part. When uh, we think that the author is John, the same gentleman who wrote the book of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that we have already talked about. And so today, he is exiled on an island, the island of Pathmos, and he is in the spirit and has this vision. And so... Uh, I would assume that he is worshiping or in some way meditating, and the Lord just kind of opens his eyes to things that are to come. Now, the problem with prophetic scripture, which we have found back in Daniel, Isaiah, uh, Zechariah, there are several other authors of the in the Old Testament that wrote prophetically. This is the only one that I really see that's in the New Testament, uh, although there's some little hints to prophetic things that Jesus talks about. But this one is um, a little bit more complicated because we're at a time in the early church when there's a lot of persecution. And John has been exiled to the island of Pathmos, most likely as a form of punishment. And so anything that comes in or out um, for him to read or anything that he's written has to be greatly censored. And so he is writing in such a way that it will get past the censors. And if you keep that in mind, then you'll understand why everything is written in code or as it seems. Uh, he refers to um, angels and the beast and uh, the Antichrist and different names that we today uh, think of quite differently than perhaps the early church did. Now, at the time he's writing this, he is hoping, well, he's starting it as a letter. He's hoping for this to be able to be circulated to the main churches in Asia. Although, uh, he, and he writes a specific challenge to each one of them, either a praise or a reprimand or just a, a challenge to them. And so we're going to look at those first. The last part of the book, after about chapter 3, we will see that he begins 
writing about something, an event that he sees happening in heaven. Only this event takes place over quite a bit of time because there's several different phases to it. And it is definitely um, pointing to things that are to come. Now, what we don't know today is were these things that happened during the first century or second century or um, are we already living through part of what is being discussed in Revelations or is that all yet still to come? And Bible scholars have a lot of different opinions about this. In fact, if you actually do a study of Revelations, which I would greatly encourage, then you will read from lots of different people how to interpret these symbols that are mentioned. But for our purpose, we are just going to cover the actual content. And I will probably along the way say, well, this could mean this or could mean that. But really, it takes uh, a lot more concentration than we can give it in basic Bible. Let's begin at the first of Revelations. Here we see that John describes in chapter 1 his vision of a man who obviously reminds him of Jesus uh, with white hair, fiery eyes, a double-edged sword in his mouth. Um, obviously, the, and remember, John was the ones that really talked about the Word, the Word was God. And so it's very important what the, this image of Jesus with the double-edged sword in his mouth, that what he is about to say has two sides to it. It cuts both ways. Okay, and here he begins to say that he sees these seven lampstands, which of course are representing the seven churches that he's about to talk to. And that this, this image that he thinks is probably Jesus has seven stars in his hands. And these are the messengers that will go to these various churches. Now, whether the, it, it makes it seem like these stars are like spirits. So I'm not sure if he just doesn't know for sure who the messengers are going to be or if there is actually such a thing as an angel for every church or if this is just symbolic of the Spirit of God at each of these different churches. And so he begins to say to the messenger or the angel uh, for the church of Ephesus write. And that's how he is communicating uh, through these, this code to the various churches. Now remember he's getting it past the censors so some of the things he writes will not be exactly straightforward but a lot of it is. In fact turn to Revelations chapter 2 1 through 7 and we'll see what he writes to the church in Ephesus. Here's what it says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in par the paradise of God. So we see in this part of the letter, he says to the church at Ephesus, You've done really well up to this point, but all a lot of your love that you showed at the beginning, the things you did for God that uh, because you were so in love with him, these have faded. Now, the reason we think that this 
particular book was written a little bit later in the first century is because the churches which were so on fire at first as they accepted the word of God and were excited to be uh, believers and suffered persecution but everything was brand new and exciting to them and now it's been a while a certain level of complacency has come upon the churches and so he is reminding them to get back to their their first love he's also saying that um, that he commends them for not following the practices of the Nicolaitans. If you're wondering what is that, this was a term they used for false teachers back then that were trying to get the early believers to combine their faith with idol worship. It was a way of diluting the gospel. And so the the term Nicolaitan sort of refers to, in Greek or Hebrew, whichever, however this is um, translated, uh, it is referring to Balaam's sin. Now, those of you that took the Old Testament part of this class will remember that Numbers 22 talks about Balaam, the guy who had the talking donkey, that he, God had so warned him not to speak anything other than what God, the words God put in his mouth. And he didn't really want to do it. He liked being able to prophesy for money. That's what he did, Balaam. And so instead, finally, God just had to make his donkey tell him, you know, hey, why are you beating me? Don't you see that um, there's an angel in the road that's going to kill you because you're not going to obey what God has told you? And so, but the reason at the time we did the story of Balaam, this, his true sin hadn't really taken place. What happens is later on in Numbers 31, actually in verse 16, it talks about how Balaam then helped uh, Balak, who was the guy who was trying to destroy the Israelites, uh, to lead the, the Israelites astray in idol worship. And so now in the New Testament, we have the reference to that because there are individuals who are trying to convince the early Christians to uh, indulge in sexual immorality, you know, the whole thing with the temple prostitutes and that. So John in his warning is telling them that he agrees that you have rejected these practices. However, you need to do the things you did at first when you first showed how much you loved the Lord. Now, in the next few verses, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, let's read it just right quickly since it's so short. It says, To the church of the, the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even in the point to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And so their message is that, of course, you've been suffering suffering, and there's more trials ahead. Even though it feels like you are poor and have nothing, that really you're rich. They're rich in the spirit. And that if they will just hold true to the end, which won't be that much longer, that a crown of life awaits them. And so in after each of these passages, there is a phrase that says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the church, uh, the spirit is saying to the churches. I'm sure that was uh, John's way of saying, 
I'm hoping that you'll be able to read between the lines to what I'm saying because he couldn't very well just come right out and advocate, resist the government, resist those who are trying to destroy you because that would be considered treason. So instead, he talks about uh, resisting to the end uh, trials and, and is kind of vague about it. Okay, after this, he talks to the church in Pergamum. And he says that you have held true to Christ, you are put, uh, but however, you are putting up with false teachers in your midst. Repent or face the consequences. Um, they live in a very wicked city. The city of Pergamum must have been one of the central places for a lot of the temple worship of the false teachers, the Nicolaitans it talks about again, who are misleading believers. And he is saying... Um, you hold true to Christ, but you're putting up with them and no more. They must be dealt with and or the entire church will have to answer for it. Okay, the next message is for the church in Thyatira. Um, let's just read this part too. Um, chapter 2 verses 18 through 20. So it's not very much here. It says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that, that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teachings, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. It goes on the rest of what will happen because of this. Now, I doubt that the woman's name really was Jezebel. If you remember, those of you that took the Old Testament, that that was a phrase that was, well, it was the name of King Ahab's wife, who everybody just uh, detested, uh, who was so wicked and really increased the worship of the idol Baal. And so whenever we refer to, refer to someone who's particularly wicked, sometimes we'll say, well, she's quite a Jezebel. And this is sort of how this began, because uh, John is saying, you have this woman who's among you who's leading people astray. And so he is warning them, hey, if you don't deal with it, you need to know that, you know, this is what is going to happen to her. And many of you, your own people will be um, punished as well. So... Um, let's talk for a little bit. It, it says here that the church in Sardis, which is right after this, um, is accused of being dead. It is. It says that they are, uh, you know, really pretty much have fallen away completely from the Lord. And then the church in Laodicea it says, well, they're neither hot nor cold, and I will spew them out of my mouth. In other words, both of these churches have to be um, awakened. They need revival, as we would say. But then he says to the church in Philadelphia, uh, they have been faithful to proclaim Christ and because of this will avoid the coming tribulation. All right, let's talk about this coming tribulation because that is where we begin then the rest of Revelations. And from here, John says that he, he looks into the heavens, there's an open door, and here's what he sees. He says that there is this brilliant person sitting on a, a throne who had, you know, was really just flashing brilliant colors of light, kind of like jewels. And around him there are 24 thrones with different, with the 24 elders 
occupying them. Um, he describes these other strange spirits and creatures and things that he really can't describe because he doesn't really have words to describe them. But he kind of says, well, they have eyes all over their bodies and, um, you know, it just, there's a lot of strangeness for him. Now, the way that this has been interpreted by some Bible scholars is that he is seeing things that today, if we saw them, we would say, oh, that's a computer or, oh, that's this or that, uh, a helicopter or what have you. Um, I'm not quite willing to go there because I believe that John is seeing things that are not of this world. And we may never know what those things are until we see them ourselves. But whatever that these symbols represent, the good thing about studying Revelations is you can begin to see certain tie-ins with some things that Daniel spoke of many, you know, centuries before. And so as uh, John is, is describing what he's seeing, he's also trying to put it in some kind of a context that this is happening in heaven, in the spiritual realm. Now, what we don't know is did then these events that he begins to describe, did these then take place during the first century or second century right at the, uh, in other words, pretty much right after John wrote them? Because there are symbols about... Uh, a beast with seven heads and ten horns and the that could represent the seven hills around Rome or or um, they would talks about the Antichrist which we'll look at here in a minute and it says um, his name adds up to 666 and there are people that have figured out that uh, there's a sort of a numerology that takes um, that was kind of popular then where um, you could add up letters in a name and it would come up with the number and therefore Nero was 666. Uh, all of that is just purely speculation. I have a feeling that the early Christians who are receiving this was were able to read between the lines a little bit better than we are today. But on the other hand, I'm not so sure that all of the things that he is talking about was necessarily immediately relevant to them because they may or may not be going through this tribulation that's to come. So John begins to describe this this heavenly being on the throne with flashing brilliant colors of light. Uh, all the other beings in heaven are bowing down to this one and worshiping him. So I would kind of guess that must be God. And But now I don't know for sure because really remember that this could be symbolic um, of future events or it could be symbolic of just what heaven is like so whoever the one on the throne is and he doesn't come right out and say this is God but he does bring other certain symbolism to play he says I saw a scroll that had seven seals and with each one of these seals there are certain events that happen in heaven as they're broken. But at the beginning, there's no one who's worthy to open the scroll. And so there's sadness until they see the lamb. It talks about the lamb, that one that looked like a lamb that was slain, who is worthy. To, and they, So then they all praise the lamb. And the lamb is then able to begin opening the seals. Okay, so all through this, he has not mentioned God or Jesus Christ yet. Uh, he will eventually, but at this point he is still trying to avoid actually naming what he sees. Or it may be that these are just impressions he's getting and he's not sure what they mean either. He's just communicating what he sees. Okay, so as the lamb begins to open the scroll with, with each one of these seals that he breaks, there is a horseman that's released and this horseman is sent to the earth and he, uh, allowed to 
pretty much wreak havoc on the earth. They can either, uh, from the beginning, they're they're either conquering the people, they're uh, taking away peace so that there's wars, um, there's economical uh, trials, of inflation, people can't afford to eat. Uh, when the fourth horseman uh, comes, he brings death to a fourth of the land. With the fifth seal, there's a crowd of people who have suffered for the word of God. And now they are in heaven. They have these white robes, and they're told to wait a little bit longer. These are the ones who have suffered, probably the martyrs. Okay, with each of these different events, we don't know if they're strictly happening in the spiritual realm or if indeed this is what the end of the world looks like. There are... Uh, there's inflation, there's um, hardship, a third, a fourth of the people die. Later on, we'll find that another third uh, of the earth is destroyed. With each of these events, there is a more tribulation going on. Uh, finally, it gets to the sixth seal, and there's this great earthquake uh, that causes mass destruction throughout the earth. Um, all the inhabitants of the earth are trying to hide they are so afraid of the wrath of the lamb and the angel says wait so that all the servants of God um, can be marked with the mark that says we belong to God basically a uh, seal on their forehead uh, and it says that there will be a hundred and forty four thousand okay so what does this number mean it's probably purely uh, symbolic but these hundred and forty four thousand are those that are still believing in in God uh, at this time and that uh, because the angel has sealed them, they won't be affected by what's going on. They'll be protected from a lot of it. But you can see that these images are so hard to interpret because you're never sure are these, especially with the 144,000, because then he proceeds to say 12,000 from this tribe and this tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, tribe of Judah. Okay, those were Jews. We're now in the Christian realm. Why is he going back and saying, okay, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel? So obviously it's, once again, symbolic. We don't know. Uh, if you did a more in-depth study of Revelations, you would probably be able to piece together um, what what this is getting at. And by listening to different um, Bible scholars who had kind of studied this or that or knew what the Greek words were that this could be referring to that would greatly help but for our purposes I just want you to know that a lot of this is just strictly symbolic we don't know if it is for the future because some of these things that it talks about the destruction of Jerusalem well, remember some of that happened in the first century in 70 AD and so when John is describing that these things are about to happen we we don't know if if these things he you know what what he's reporting on is imminent or is it for the end of the age okay so there's when the seventh seal is broken the angel appears with uh, um, seven angels appear and each one of them have a trumpet and then they begin to blow each one blows his trumpet and as they're blowing the trumpet you know with each one when the first one blows his trumpet there, all sorts of bad things happen on the earth, and it just gets worse until the fact that there's a third of the water has turned to blood, all the rivers are poisoned. I'm sorry, a third of the rivers are poisoned. Uh, a third of the sun is blocked. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, we learned that, oh, this sounds like nuclear holocaust. This is exactly what's going to happen. The world is going to be destroyed, and it'll all be because of a nuclear um, 
war that's going on. Now, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know if that's what is intended in, in the future or what it isn't. But I know this, that if we are prepared, if we are preparing our own life in such a way, just as he has warned these churches, to do the things you did at first, to return to your first love, to not be just hot or cold, then we are prepared for whatever could be coming whether it's in our lifetime or whether it has happened and we are living at a certain age. Now, the reason I say we may be already living in past all these tribulations, maybe these things happened, although it's hard to believe that because I don't remember ever reading in the history books that a third of the sun was um, blocked or that a third of the moon and stars disappeared. Um so that's what makes us think, well, maybe are these just symbolic? Does it just mean that the world is a darker place? Could this be referring to the dark ages when, when everything was so gloomy? Are we living in the thousand years that it refers to when Christ will reign on earth? Um, when it talks about there are two witnesses that are on the earth, uh, this is in chapter 11, and they begin to preach for three and a half years, and then they are killed. Uh, but after three days, they rise again. So we see, okay, there is, in this struggle with good and evil, there are some who are able to proclaim the gospel and then they are stopped from it for a period of time and then they are allowed to go up to be with the Lord. So um, through chapters 12 through uh, 13, there's a battle in heaven. We see a, a woman who is about to give birth. There's a dragon that's chasing her. And she does give birth to the male child, and the male child is immediately protected. And so you might say, oh, that sounds like Jesus being born. But all of this is happening in the future or in the past. That's the thing. You have to kind of weigh, okay, what does this represent? In the process of these things going on, there is a period of uh, time when the, the war is so great it's called Armageddon. You have probably heard that phrase somewhere in your lifetime, the story of Armageddon, the great war that will occur, and the Antichrist who will bear the number 666. If you've read any of the Left Behind series uh, by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, it, it is based loosely on Revelations, and it um, talks about what these things could mean. Uh, in for our future. Uh, once again, it's just a different spin on it, but you, if you're particularly interested in this topic, it might help you uh, begin to put into perspective what's actually going on. Uh, another phrase that's, that you will hear among Christian circles is this millennium, this a thousand years when Christ reigns. And you may hear people talk about pre-millennium or post-millennium. Um, what this is referring to, this thousand years when Christ reigns, uh, is a time of relative peace for the church. And some people are saying, well, this is the age of the church. It's what we're kind of living in right now. Um, although that gets kind of messed up if you think about the Holocaust and other things. It's not always been a good time for the church or uh, for believers. Uh, and certainly right now is a struggle if, as a believer to stand up for your faith. And you may be in a country that doesn't allow free speech, and therefore you're even less likely to be able to share your faith. So I personally wouldn't subscribe to the thought that we're living in the millennium at this point. I have a feeling that that's going to be a time when Christ really does reign as our um, our God, as our great King. So that's just me personally, though. I encourage you to do your own study. 
Uh, things to remember from Revelations is that uh, some of these things may or may not have occurred and that most of it is symbolic. That you should not add to or take away really from any of scripture because this is God's holy word. It wasn't designed to be uh, just another reading book. It is designed to be a guideline and uh, really God's word to us. And so it is spirit filled and that's why it's important for us to respect it. And finally remember that in the end Christ is victorious, that God wins and that good wins out over evil. We will live forever in a new heaven and a new earth that was just designed for with all the glories of heaven and with Christ as our King and Ruler. And that will be a great day. Okay, well that is our conclusion of the New Testament and I hope that you've enjoyed the basic Bible study. Please take some time and um, if you would like to do the final for it, email me and say could you send me the final test if you are a uh, leader. It will be uh, found in your uh, leader's guide at the back. There's also uh, a review sheet that's available and so if you email me and say could you send me the review I would be happy to do that too. Uh, just different tools that will help you in your study and, and review of the New Testament and as I have said all along please do take the time to go back and study this in a more in-depth way with a Bible teacher with a good concordance and a good uh, commentary and, and ways that you can actually say oh there's so much more to this because there really is and I always do feel that we do the Bible a little bit of a disservice by covering it so quickly but the reverse is to be lost all the way through it because you can't figure out what's going on and why is this happening now and when did this happen so in our study of basic Bible my hope is that you have seen that Christ was the plan all along and that our salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, you can email me at margie, M-A-R-G-I-E, at basicbible101.com. I don't know if I will be doing future podcasting, but if I do, I would be delighted for you to join me in our study of Scripture. It has been my joy to be able to take you through Basic Bible 101. Thank you for being faithful to the podcast and staying with it to the end. And I'm hoping that the Lord has blessed you. And until our next opportunity to share God's word, be blessed. Mm -hmm.